0: One through ten after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, "Women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus." And worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me.
1: Let's pray together one more time. Father, we thank you so much for the word that you have given us. Um, Jesus, we acknowledge that right now that you are here with us through your spirit, that you are alive, that you're rolling, that you're reigning, and that you want to minister and speak to every single heart that is here. There's not one person who is lost in the crowd. You see all of us. And today we believe that you want to come and you want to meet us with your love, with your grace, with your mercy. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that if there's anything in me or anything that I want to say that does not reflect your true character and who you are, that you would just get that out and that you would speak clearly through me to those who are here and online. It's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it was August 21st, 2017, and the scientists predicted that we would have a total solar eclipse that spanned the United States from the Pacific to the Atlantic coast. Uh, media deemed this the great American eclipse. It was actually the very first solar eclipse uh, that came to America during the smartphone and social media era. And therefore, because of that, as pastors, Adam and I thought it'd be a wonderful opportunity to actually wrap him in aluminum foil. Uh, put a garbage bag over him, some swimming goggles on his face, and then stand him at the corner of Highway 49 and 412 with a sign that read, next line, the eclipse will kill you, run for your lives. Now, uh, by the way, my mom and dad are in the back. Um, I did not hold that sign, that was Adam, okay, and so that was all him. Um, Obviously, nobody took Adam seriously. We did have uh, a police officer stop by and have a good laugh. Uh, there were other like, college students that took selfies with him. One guy actually took a video of Adam, uh, posted it on Facebook. It went viral within 24 hours. I think it had 15,000 views, which, by the way, to this day, is the most watched video of any pastor at the crossing. And so uh, you should be proud of that. Um, but of the thousands of people who heard The message that Adam was proclaiming that day, whether they were in person or online, because it was a message that was so absurd, it just went in one ear and out the other. And the reason I share that with you is because sometimes that's what it can feel like to be a preacher on Easter Sunday. Uh, Whether you're just stopping by on your way to lunch or you've been interrupted by me as you're scrolling through Facebook right now, there's an increasing number of people in America Who see the Easter message as as crazy and far fetched as Adam standing on the street corner talking about how the eclipse will kill you. And I I just want to say, like, you know, if that is where you are this morning, if you're here or watching online, you're like, I don't really know what I believe about the resurrection, or maybe I believe it's true intellectually, but practically, I have no idea how it really even impacts my life today, then I want you to know I'm so glad that you're here. And I want you to know that you're welcome here uh, today and any day. Um, that we are here. I also want you to know that you're surrounded by people in the room right now whose life have been changed by this crazy message, uh, people who have been transformed by the resurrected Jesus. And so there are those of you who are here today. I don't know you have hearts throbbing with gratitude and joy. And to you, I want to say I'm also so glad that you're here. Happy Easter, and He is risen. All right. So as a pastor, like this is kind of a um, there's a tension, right, for me. I know there are people in the room watching online again who have been transformed by Jesus, others who are just here to make an appearance, to make their family happy. And wherever you are in the room, I think while we're all here, I want to ask you a question, a question that has haunted me uh, throughout my life, Uh, a question that you have either already asked yourself or you will one day ask yourself. And here's the question I want you to consider. Is what you're believing strong enough to take you where you want to go. In other words, when you think about the stories that you're believing in your head, and we all believe a story, when you think about the voices you listen to that inform your daily decisions, when you think about your beliefs and your convictions about yourself, about the world, about life after this life, is it a belief that makes you stronger? Does it make you more resilient? Does it give you more joy and peace? Does it fulfill you? Does it give you meaning and purpose? Or if you can be honest, is it a belief that slowly but surely has, has eaten away at your joy? A belief that maybe has actually left you unfulfilled and made you more anxious and disappointed and possibly even depressed. And with that question in mind, I want you to look back with me at Matthew chapter 28 as we look at the resurrection story. A story that I submit to you this morning is, is the only story that is so powerful and so true that it actually can lead you where you want to go. And the way that I want to frame this story today is I want you to see the resurrection speaks to three areas of our life. The resurrection speaks to our suffering, it speaks to our satisfaction, and it speaks to our shame. You know, because we live in a fallen world, suffering is unavoidable. Satisfaction often feels unattainable, and shame can at times be unshakable. And the good news about the resurrection of Jesus is that it speaks to all three of these areas, to our suffering to your satisfaction and your shame. So I want to take each of these one by one, starting with suffering. Look at me back at, uh, chapter 28, verse 1. It says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And so this is where resurrection starts. It starts with these women walking to a grave, walking to this tomb to pay the respects to this man they love, this man who just days earlier they watched die on a cross. So resurrection, think about this, it actually starts with a funeral. And so I want to just ask you before we go any further, what is the last funeral that you attended? Can you go back to that place in your imagination? I know that for me, it was when I delivered a eulogy for a woman who died unexpectedly in her mid-50s. And it was a time, like pretty much any other funeral I've ever performed, where I show up to try to bring these words that will comfort the family, but then I find that my words are often pinned to the floor by the weight of their grief. It was also a time where I was reminded of my own mortality, the fact that like this woman, one day I will die and so will every single person around me. Tim Keller is actually a pastor in New York who's dying of pancreatic cancer right now. And here's what he says. Death is still, for the most part, totally random. Doesn't it feel that way? And it's absolutely coming. Therefore, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, uh, wealthy comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, death will inevitably ruin it all. Or as Damian Eccles once put it, death is the great wrecking ball that destroys everything. And it is in this place of death, think about this, in this place of suffering where Easter morning begins. The women are walking to the tomb, they're walking to a grave, this place where Jesus, the Messiah, was buried. And because that is true, what I want you to get this morning is that when it comes to suffering, the God of the Bible is a God that you can trust. This is a God who actually has the courage to take his own medicine. He's a God who crawls into the mess of your own life, and he feels the darkness that we have all felt with the loneliness that we have all felt. This is a God who actually cries at funerals, the Bible tells us. He bleeds when he's cut, and he himself was nailed to a cross where he would be publicly executed for the forgiveness of your sins and my sins. So this is a God, listen, who is in no way a stranger to whatever suffering that you are experiencing today. I recently read a book by Elie Wiesel, who was a Holocaust survivor. He tells a story about a time that he was a prisoner in Auschwitz. And in his book, he explains about how any time a fellow prisoner was hanged for his offenses, they would make all the other prisoners watch. And on this one particular day, three prisoners were executed. There were two men, one on the right and one on the left, and in the middle was a small child, a little boy. The picture was biblical. It was like Golgotha, two offenders on either side while in the middle hung this picture of innocence. After the hanging, the guards would force the prisoners to walk in front of the gallows as a warning of, hey, this is what will happen to you if you disobey us. And on that day when he walked past these gallows, the two men were deceased, but the boy was too light. It didn't weigh enough. And so he hung there kicking his legs and fidgeting his body for over half an hour until eventually he too would die. And in his book, Visel describes getting close enough to see the boy's face, to see the suffering, to see the injustice. And he says behind him just loud enough, he heard a man whisper under his breath, Where is God? And from within me, Wiesel writes, I heard a voice, Where is he? This is where, hanging from this gallows. You see, Jesus, when he was on earth, said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is God in the flesh. The one who left a perfect place in heaven and he came to this planet as the only true innocent son to ever live. And then on his own free will, he chose to suffer and die between two tim- criminals on a cross, the most horrific death any human could ever die. And what makes Jesus' death actually unique is not that it was a death by crucifixion. A lot of people actually died from crucifixion during those days. What made Jesus' death unique is that it was actually promised. Have you ever thought about that, that hundreds of years before Jesus Died, right? Jesus did not die because of a series of unfortunate events. Like his death was promised by God through the prophets. And there's a lot of different prophecies I could read to you. This is just one from Isaiah 53. This is hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And here's what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verse 3 He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crucified for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. The reason Jesus came to this earth was to suffer and die. That's why he came. And he didn't just come to suffer and die so he could sympathize with you, but so he could heal you. So that by his wounds, you could experience the forgiveness and the freedom that you long for. So that you could know that just as Jesus experienced a death, burial, and resurrection, that if you trust in him one day, you too will experience a death, burial, and resurrection. Psychologist David Benner says that as humans, we need a meaning strong enough to make our suffering sufferable. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Through his own suffering, he has made suffering sufferable. God will not protect you from pain. But what he will do is parachute in the middle of that pain. And he will walk with you, he says, even to the valley of the shadow of death. Do you realize if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus, death is not your executioner. It is your gardener. When you die, you will experience a life that is fuller and more beautiful than you can ever imagine. A life that, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, he says, will make the sufferings of this present world not even worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed. And so resurrection, before it's about anything, is about suffering. Secondly, resurrection is about satisfaction. Some of you may remember back in the fall, we studied the life of Solomon A man that historians all agree had more pleasure, power, popularity, possessions, and prestige than any of you will ever have. He was off the chart, successful by whatever standards you want to use. Whatever mountain, I'll say it like this, whatever mountain you're trying to climb to get satisfaction and fulfillment, he already made it to the top of an even bigger mountain. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, which by the way, if you're here and you're a skeptic, start with the book of Ecclesiastes, then read the book of Mark. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, he basically, he basically climbs back down the mountain to tell us what he discovered. And here's what he says. That even if you could get to the top of that mountain, you're trying to climb in order to be happy, and you won't. But even if you could get to the top of it, he says, let me just save you the trouble, and I'll tell you what awaits you when you get there. He says, it's all hevel. It's the Hebrew word that he uses, which means it's all smoke. It's all vapor. It is all a chasing after the wind. It will give you temporary relief. It will give you some temporary satisfaction. It may numb your pain for a season, but in the end, it will not fill the gap of eternity. It will never do for you what you think it's going to do for you. And if you don't believe Solomon, you're like, ah, why do I believe this ancient book? Just look at the icons and culture that we often look to as like the successful people. We talked about this in the series. Remember Moby, the great recording artist who after winning an Academy Award was like, if I could have jumped out of the window and killed myself that night, I would have done so. Because I worked so hard to get there. I finally got it and I was like, wow, that's it? I think of Tom Brady, right, in his interview in 60 Minutes who won his sixth Super Bowl. And it's like, I, have, I just keep thinking to myself, there's got to be more to life than this. Or I think about Boris Becker who became the youngest person to ever win a Grand Slam. And after winning it, he literally was suicidal. Because like, I worked my whole life from a kid to adult to get here, and it was nothing. It was vanity. It was hell. I read a tweet just this past week from the former basketball coach of Green County Tech. He's just retired recently, and he's reflecting on his life and was tweeting. And I read where he said, after he won his first state championship, which he worked so hard to get, he looked at the assistant coach and said, shouldn't we feel different than this? It doesn't satisfy and that, is satisfying. and that is because, as Solomon points out, true satisfaction, listen to me, is not found in anything under the sun, but it is found in the risen sun, in Jesus Christ, the one who alone can give you the satisfaction that even death itself cannot take from you. And that's what we see in this story, right? If you think back and, and right here in, in chapter 28, the two women are on their way to the tomb, and imagine the scene. They arrive, and there's this angel who just has rolled the stone away and is just sitting there on the stone chilling. And the two guards have passed out from fear. I mean, they're paralyzed in fear because, by the way, when you think of angels, they're not like these little cute little babies that like float around on clouds and like pluck harps. Like they're warriors of light. Anytime someone meets an angel in the scripture, they are terrified. And so here's this angel sitting on the stone. The women roll up and immediately they also are afraid. But then look at verse 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Look at this. For I know what you are looking for. You are looking for Jesus. What are you looking for this morning? I know what you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb. They were afraid yet filled with joy. They're still afraid of what they just experienced, this crazy warrior of light. But they're filled with joy over this news about Jesus. In verse 9, suddenly Jesus meets them and says, greetings. And in the Greek, by the way, that is a warm, playful type uh, greeting. I love it. Greetings, he says. And they came and they clasped Jesus' feet. And they worshiped And Don't miss verse 10. And he said to them, do not be afraid in other words you no longer have to live with this mixture of paralyzing fear and joy because i am back from the dead you can now have true joy pure joy undiluted unchanging joy that is not rooted in your circumstances but in me the one who has conquered sin death and hell for some of you in here this morning You look good on the outside, but if you can be honest, inside there is little joy and a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. And possibly that is because for some of you, you are searching for satisfaction in someone or something other than Jesus. Rather than anchoring your hope in Christ, you are building your life on what Jesus referred to as the sinking sand. On someone or something that you know can either die or fade away. Something that you cannot trust will always be there with you. And if that is where you are this morning, the invitation from Jesus is to go from chasing the wind to clinging to him, to attach yourself to Jesus, to worship Jesus like these women who alone can give you the salvation and the satisfaction that you are longing for. So the resurrection is about suffering. Secondly, it's about satisfaction. Lastly, resurrection is about shame. In the brutally honest biography of a man named Joseph Knott, he describes the best day of his life that came at the age of 12 when he hung out with his best friend, Colin. He said, they went to the movies that night and they came home, they ordered pizza and they made root beer floats. The next morning, Joseph, along with Colin's family, all sat around the table and they had a pancake breakfast together. And then after breakfast, Colin's mom drove Joseph home and she always drove him back home to the house where Colin pretended to live his fake life that he had convinced others was true. And what would happen is she would drop Colin off at the door and whenever he saw her drive away, he would then walk a mile down the road to the house that he actually lived in. But on this day, she went to drop him off and there was another family that was clearly not his family outside playing in the front yard. This woman began to put the pieces together and she looked at this 12-year-old boy and she said, where do you actually live, Joseph? Joseph. He actually lived in the low-income section of Los Angeles with a low-functioning attic for a mother. His home just happened to be like on the border of the, of the school zone where all the other kids in his class had two parents in the home and did things like pancake breakfasts on Saturdays. Where do you actually live, Joseph? She asked from the driver's seat of her Mercedes Coupe. At first, he pretended he didn't hear her. Tears began to well up in his eyes, and then, with his voice trembling... He finally got the strength to say, thanks for the pizza, and then he got out of the car. And then he writes, as I walked away, I thought of how I would never see her again and would never sleep at Collin's house again, not after what had just happened, not now that she knew. You see, that instinct within Joseph is the instinct to hide in order to protect ourselves, to hide our weaknesses, to never be fully seen for who we are out of fear of rejection. And it's actually an instinct that goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, they eat this fruit from the, the only tree God said don't eat from. They eat of it immediately because they sin against God. They go from, from walking with him in the cool of the garden to actually hiding behind leaves in shame. And when you think of shame, don't think of guilt. They're two different things. Guilt says, I've done something bad, but shame says, I am bad. Guilt is like a stain on your shirt, but shame is like a disfigured face. It feels like this permanent part of you that you have to mask and hide because if people could see that part of you, they would reject you. Ed Welch says this, Shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed, unacceptable, and unworthy of love either because of something you have done or because of something that has been done to you. And so sometimes shame is the result of bad things we've done. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden, but then sometimes shame is the result of bad things that have been done to us. Some of you in the room today, you've experienced abuse. That'd be physical, sexual, or verbal. Some of you have been divorced. You've been cheated on. You've been bullied. You've been abandoned by a parent. And as a result, because of something bad that has been done to you, you carry a deep sense of shame. And, and here's what shame says in essence shame is the voice that says, I am defective. I am damaged. I'm broken. I'm flawed. I'm dirty. I'm ugly. I'm impure. I'm disgusting. I'm unlovable. I'm weak. I'm pitiful. I'm insignificant, I'm stupid, I'm worthless, I am unwanted. For some of you, that is the voice that is loudly playing through your head. Maybe even right now. And if that is where you are, I want to encourage you to lift your eyes off of yourself and onto the risen Jesus, who will meet you in your shame and cover you with his love. This is what we see in verse 10. It's a kind of a throwaway verse, but it's so powerful. He says to the women final verse we'll look at go tell my brothers. To go to Galilee, there they will see me. Who is Jesus talking about when he says, Go tell my brothers? Yeah. He's talking about Simon and his disciples. He's talking about these guys who literally had just rejected him, abandoned him, denied him. And what's incredible to me is rather than Jesus holding a grudge against his disciples, rather than rubbing their failures and flaws in their face. Listen, guys, in the only place in all of Jesus's life, he decides right here to refer to them, not as his disciples, but as his brothers. Why? Because what Jesus wants to make abundantly clear to every single one of you here and watching online is this. Your relationship with God is not dependent on what you do for him, but what he has done for you. The love that Jesus has for you right now is not dependent on how well you perform for him, but in his perfect performance on your behalf. And it is so important that we get that because the Bible is clear. All of us in the room today have sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. All of us have things in our life we are not proud of. We all have things that we've done or thoughts that we've had in our heads. Maybe even this last week, I know I have. Things that I would never want anybody else to know about. And the bad news is God actually sees all of that. The good news is that if you look to the risen Jesus, if you will trust in the perfect life of Jesus that he lived a sinless life you could not live and he died a death on a cross. You deserve to die for your sins and he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell. If you will trust in that, then you can right now stand before God as you are holy, blameless, and accepted. Second Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, talking about Jesus who knew no sin, to be sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 10.10 says that we have been made holy through Jesus once and for all. What that means is where you sit right now, no matter what you've done this week, you look perfect in the eyes of God. He loves you with the same love that he loves his own son, Jesus. You're loved unconditionally, without qualification and restriction. And because this is a message that is so hard to believe and even harder to experience it, we need to remind each other of this over and over and over. Sometime back, I lost my cool with my daughter. I'll spare you the details today. Since it's Easter Sunday but I've, I've realized that I can be anxious and in my attempt to get bigger than my fear I can sometimes rage internally and I was in this moment of rage where I began to yell at my daughter and begin to shame her she wasn't doing what I wanted to do and so I like to use shame to motivate her sometimes because it works to get the job done and immediately like I knew what I was doing was wrong I was hurting her and so I decided to atone for my sins by taking her out for ice cream Because ice cream covers a multitude of sins. Uh, And man, I was walking in so much shame. And So I apologized to her over and over. And I think the third time I apologized to her, she looked right at me. And she said, Dad, Jesus really does forgive you. And so do I. And then she said, you don't have to be perfect because he's perfect. And I know like maybe for some of you, you're like, okay, like, I know that maybe some of you have to sound like I'm a cheesy pastor right now, who always has a little bit of a temper as well, um, who's just telling this cheesy story on Easter, but that was a real event in my life. That actually happened. And in that moment, God used my daughter as a conduit of his love to, in that moment, absolve my shame. And the reason that moment's so powerful is because, you know, here's the reality. Nobody will ever hurt my daughter more than I will. I don't know if you ever thought about that. That's one of the gut-wrenching realities of living in a fallen world is the people that we love the most are the ones who oftentimes are most negatively impacted by our own sin. You will never be more negatively impacted by me than my own family will. And so on that day, knowing that, as I'm sitting in shame because of this Grand Canyon-sized gap between who I am and who I want to be, between my intentions and my actions, on that day when my daughter says to me, Dad, Jesus really does forgive you. And it's not cheesy. It's powerful, and it's freeing, and it's life-giving. And the whole reason I share that is just to say this. Nobody has been hurt more by your sin than Jesus. But rather than him holding your sins over your head, despite the fact that he still sees your judgmental attitude, your selfish ambition, your self-destructive patterns, your failures and your flaws, rather than shaming you, he extends to you today forgiveness. He extends to you acceptance and love that you're longing for. And as we end, I just want to ask you this this morning. Can you dare to believe that God really is this good? Can you really believe that he's this present? That he's this loving, that he's this gracious, that he's this merciful? You see, if the Easter story is just a fairy tale then then here's what's going to happen. If that's all this is, then the best it can do is give you some warm and fuzzies as you head out into the foyer in a couple minutes and take pictures in your pastel shirts and then go to lunch and hunt Easter eggs or whatever it is that you do. Like, that's the best it can do. But if the resurrection is an actual event, and it is, and Jesus really conquered the grave, and he did, then your unquenchable desires can be satisfied. The bottomless well of your shame can be drained out. And the inevitable death that awaits each of us can release us actually into a life that is bigger and better and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And so, what does the resurrection mean? Well, it means hope. And I don't mean like fairy tale, like distant escapism hope. I mean like a hope that is as durable and rugged and eternal and immortal and glorious as the resurrection of Jesus. And so as we end this morning, I just want to give you an opportunity. If you don't know this hope, if you don't know this God, he's too good to put off another day. He's too good to wait. He's too good to ignore. Maybe for some of you, you're standing here today. I love John's account of the resurrection where him and Peter run to the, to the tomb. And he points out in there that he actually beat Peter to the tomb, which is funny. He wanted to just throw that in there. But then Peter actually went into the tomb. But John, he he tells on himself, he said, I stayed back. He didn't want to go in. And it wasn't until he went into the tomb that he began to believe. Some of you, maybe right now, you are this close to the resurrected Jesus. But you're keeping him at arm's length. You don't want to go all in. And the invitation today is to go all in. Even if you don't have all of your questions answered. That's okay. I don't have all my questions answered. Even if your life's not perfect. That's okay. My life's not perfect. I just told him myself. Like, 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 go all in, and here's what I think this means. Whether you're in person or at home, here's what I think it means. And I actually want to go ahead and invite the band up. And if you will, just if you will, just close your eyes, just kind of where you are, and, and bow your head. I'm not trying to manipulate anybody. I just want to try to eliminate some distractions. If you do not know God in the way that we've talked about, then here's what I am going to encourage you to do. Would you just, where you are in your heart, say, Jesus, if this is really who you are, then come on. Jesus, I've sinned against you. I've made a mess of my life. Come and save me. Or just something like that. For the rest of us in here, just as our eyes remain closed, listen, if, if you've already trusted in this Jesus, I think the invitation for us today is to live as an Easter people, to not simply let this story shape how we live today but every day to remember, man, life is going to keep getting hard. Jesus says, in this life you will have many troubles. And so we need to remember that our hope is not in our circumstances, but it's in a person, and that person is the resurrected Jesus. Only Jesus is worthy of our praise. Only Jesus can satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. Only Jesus can absolve our shame. Jesus, and only Jesus can give us a hope that even death itself cannot take away. I want to pray for each of us and then after that we'll stand and we'll sing one final song together and if you don't have someone else to talk to here about the decisions you've made, maybe today to follow Jesus, that I would encourage you to come and get with me, get with one of the pastors. We'd love to connect with you and talk, pray, help you with next steps. Father, I do thank you so much that you love the world in such a way that you gave your only son so that through his death, we could have eternal life. And that life can even begin today. I pray that if there's anyone here right now or watching online who does not know you as who you really are, if they've not experienced you in a real and tangible way, I pray that would change it right now, Holy Spirit, that you would just open their eyes, that you would regenerate their hearts, help them to receive the gospel the good news of everything you've accomplished for us, Jesus. For the rest of us mm-hmm. in here, I pray that Jesus will realize that, that the story hasn't ended, that you have come to make all mm-hmm. things new. Our minds, our bodies, our souls, our world, and that you have invited us to join you in your great redemptive and restoration and resurrection mission. Mm-hmm. And I pray that as a church, as a people, we continue to live in light of that great resurrection, and as a result, mm-hmm. we would see new life bursting forth. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen.